Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. One of the fascinating things uh, about your book, I think the average person assumes, well, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, okay, they got Capone, Capone did it. But as you point out in your book, there has never been a formal conviction uh, of the people who did uh, the shooting. And you point out in your book that there were some cover-ups for various reasons, or, or if not cover-ups, uh, deflection of uh, pieces of information for, for various people who had their own particular agenda, uh, whether it was uh, J. Edgar Hoover or uh, people uh, in Chicago who were connected to the mob and didn't want everything to come out. That, that's a fascinating story. You had to do a lot of digging for that. Right, and it appeared uh, that this may have been the crime that nobody wanted solved. We had the police on one hand. They assigned 60 detectives full-time. They worked for three months, and they came up with nothing. The state's attorney's office had 26 detectives of its own working on the case and three assistant state's attorneys assigned full-time. An interesting sidelight, and, and you would like this a lot, Johnny, I think. They were, uh, be, in order to prevent leaks, the state's attorney, in his wisdom, rented a suite of rooms in the Stevens Hotel, which is now called the Hilton Towers, mm -hmm. on Michigan Avenue. And there, the three state's attorneys and the 26 investigators came and went each day. Three floors above them, in a palatial suite, was Jack Machine Gun McGurn, who actually was one of the main planners of the massacre, and a beautiful gun mall named Louise Rolfe. And there, when, when they finally got tired of whatever it was they were doing for the three weeks that they lived in that suite, and let it leak out, and the chief of detectives kicked the door in, and he surrendered without any trouble at all. They arrested Louise, they arrested Jack. Uh, they, they indicted him, uh, but they had no charges, uh, no evidence uh, to put against him. And 90 days later, the charges were dropped for want of prosecution. Uh, not to be outdone, they convinced the federal government to indict the two of them for the Mann Act, because it turned out that Jack had taken Louise down to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Hot Springs, Arkansas, for some other fun and games. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the that, Springs, no doubt. <laughs> they were found guilty of that. Uh, yeah. But they appealed it to the U.S. Appellate Court, and they said, nonsense, this is rubbish. And they discharged them right on that point, and so neither one of them you know, had to serve any time for that bizarre turn of events of taking the person responsible for planning the massacre and eventually indicting him for the Mann Act. Mm. There's a lot of bizarreness about the story, it, 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 and, and that's what you've captured so beautifully in the book, too. And Steve mentioned uh, Hoover um, and and the way the government was viewing Al Capone in particular. Now, um, wasn't he the first uh, public enemy number one in this country? Yes, the Chicago Crime Commission, which, by the way, was the first crime commission in the United States. It still operates really? with a full agenda to this day. They decided in their wisdom to put Al Capone 
as public enemy number one. He's probably tickled to death when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a whole array of other really bad guys yeah. on their list as well. And that, once again, made headlines all around the mm -hmm. world, once again further riveting in the reputation of Chicago as the gangland city. Right. Uh, they, the, uh, the Crime Commission tried its best to do something about uh, Al Capone, but with relatively little success, other than sending a, a deputized group to Washington, D.C. to talk to the Vice President of the United States, Chester Dawes. And I think that that had some impact also on getting Al indicted for the income tax evasion and for the harsh sentence that he eventually got. You said a moment ago when he went to Philadelphia in 29, that's really when the wheels fell off of his power hold here in Chicago. How long had he been established in Chicago at that point? Well, Al Capone came here in 1919. So good he, 10 years he yeah, was the man. He, he was brought here by Johnny Torrio, who had been brought here by Big Jim Colosimo. Big Jim Colosimo was a vice lord of the old school. You had to be in prostitution in those days if you wanted to be in vice because the Volstead Act had not yet been passed. Mm -hmm. And so Big Jim had a string of uh, houses of ladies of the evening in the area of 22nd and Michigan, 22nd and Dearborn, 22nd and Clark Street, and they operated day and night, 24 hours a day. It was called the Levy District of Chicago. Eventually, that began to be closed down because public-spirited citizens and the so-called blue stockings uh, felt that that was a blotch on the city's good name to be just outside of downtown, these 24-hour-a-day establishments. One palatial run, run by the Everly Sisters, mm -hmm. which had a Steinway piano in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, very important names are reputed to have spent several happy hours in uh, mm -hmm. Everly's uh, Palace of Pleasure out mm -hmm. there. But those were closed down, and Colosimo began to move into gambling, and he brought uh, to help him in running the gambling racket and also to ward off the Black Hand Group. There were various small-time Sicilian gangsters in Chicago trying to make uh, their place, trying to get a few dollars, and they would send uh, extortion notes to whatever names they saw in the paper or heard in the community, uh, only the Italian Sicilian community might have the money to pay them off. And if they didn't come up with the money, then the black handers would go out and kill them. Well, uh, Big Jim Calcimo got some of these notes, and that caused him to be frightened, and he asked Torrio to do something about it, and Johnny did, and the black hand never bothered Calcimo again. But as Torrio who was a very cool, suave businessman from the East Coast, began to build up the few remaining houses of prostitution and the gambling houses that uh, Colosimo had in Chicago, as well as adding some in South Side suburbs, Calumet City, Chicago mm -hmm. Heights, Burnham, Dalton, out in those areas. Uh, it looked like that uh, Colosimo was moving away from actual vice activities as he became more and more known throughout the city as a sort of a, a flashy, uh, well-known gangster. And it was important to go and sort of meet Big Jim and rub shoulders at his nightclub at 22nd and Wabash. Hmm. Well, in that nightclub, he had a singer and he fell in love with her. And despite the fact he had been happily married for 23 years to a lady whose first name was Victoria and who had been his madam of one of his whorehouses oh. and was uh, helping run them, 
He just fell in love with this lady, and he married her in April, and in May, uh, mysteriously, he was shot to death as Prohibition opened, and the talk was that uh, that uh, he did not want to go into bootlegging. Torrio and Capone did, and so that was the end of Big Jim. And the next morning, sitting at his desk, was uh, Johnny Torrio.